Father, this morning we come to you, surrendering our spirit, our soul, our body into thy hands, O Lord. We just surrender. Touch us, Lord. A fresh touch, a fresh anointing. To hear, to understand, to learn, to obey. Thought knowledge, our choices will be always wrong, Lord. We'll be led by our flesh and our emotions, Lord. We need, desperately, Lord, we need the knowledge of the Holy One. As we realize the choices we are making are not temporary. It's not just for this life. These are eternal choices. So open our eyes. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you. Speak. And help us to hear. For in Jesus name we pray. Amen. 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 Are we ready? The title of this today's message is the call to discipleship. Okay. First we look at Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. This if you know your context. You should not just know your text. You should also by now now know your context. This is about King Asa who began well. When he began well, when he was attacked, he sought the Lord. The Lord helped him and he had a great victory. Then he became prosperous and he became strong. Again, he was attacked by a large enemy. And this time, instead of seeking the help of the Lord, he sought the help of Egypt. That's what we do. That's what happens. When we don't have power and strength, we'll cry, Lord, help me. When you have a little power and strength, when we are in trouble, we ask our friends to help us. That's what he did. God was upset, very upset with him. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Okay. Now we are not looking at the second part, but the eyes of the Lord range to and forth. He's always looking for somebody whose heart is loyal to him. Nobody may see you, like Daniel in the Babylon court. Nobody may see you, but God sees you. That's what you may not realize in your classroom, in your college, in your office room, wherever you are. You may think, ah... If I don't take a stand, how does it matter? If I take a stand, what does it matter? Nobody sees me. God says, his eyes will see us. God has perfect vision. Perfect. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden. In Zechariah, in chapter 3, and verse 9, scripture says, Behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone are seven eyes. Revelation will talk about the seven eyes of God. Not that God has seven eyes. It is talking about he sees. If seven is a number of perfection, so it sees God sees everything at the same time. Nothing is hidden. He can watch everyone at the same time and know every detail of our life. At the same time, from the beginning till the end. He's perfect in how he sees. So it doesn't matter where you and I are or who we are. God sees. You see, in that Babylonian court, nobody would have noticed Daniel. Ah, another slave in Jerusalem. When he went forward to the eunuch, probably nobody even knew why he went to the eunuch. God saw. 
and God recorded it for our sake. Sometimes we don't even realize some of those little things we do in life which nobody notices are so crucial that it changes our entire life. And young kids sitting over here, I will tell you, when you read fiction, what you should read, okay? Ask me. Don't read anything that gets in your hand. Your mind is messed up. I will tell you what to read, even if you like fiction. One of the persons you should read is Dickens. Okay, Charles Dickens. Somebody said this about Dickens. And if somebody were to take away every Bible in the world and every trace of the Bible, and if Dickens' novels are still left, people would still become Christian. Okay, so in there is an incredible novel called Oliver Twist. All these kids in this government orphanage and they are all very hungry because they are only fed one serving. Very hungry. So they all finally pick on Oliver Twist and says, you today have to go and ask, sir, I want little more. That never happens there. This poor fellow pushed by everybody goes there and asks, sir, I want more. But that request, if you read the novel, was the thing that began a chain of terrible events initially, but changed his entire life. Okay, simple. Sometimes when you stand up for little things, you never know. There is one who sees, who sees. God is watching. Every day, every home, every school, every school, Every college, every office, every public place, every private place. He sees it all, even in your private place. Even when you're all alone. And when you're being incredibly tempted before your computer, when you stand up alone, God sees that too. He sees that too. He sees that too. Psalm 33, verse 18 to 19, scripture says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. His eyes are upon them. First, those who fear him, then the rest follows. He doesn't save everybody from famine. He doesn't save every soul from death. His eyes are on those who Fear him and who hope on his mercy. Okay? So, remember, using the context of Daniel, we are working on situations to how we stand up in our own culture, in our own nation, in our own particular situations. Because the problem is, we use the term Christian. But the question is, are we disciples? The word Christian is used in the entire Bible. It can only come in the New Testament only three times. Only three times. Twice in the book of Acts. First time they were called Christians in Antioch. Second time Agrippa tells Paul, are you, you always convince me to be a Christian. And third time Peter says, it's good to be persecuted if you're being persecuted as a Christian. The only three times the word is used. During the time of Jesus' ministry, the ones he called who followed him were disciples before they became apostles. They were disciples, that means they were under the discipline of their Lord. 
It's interesting. When you are a disciple, we have to get these ideas very clear in our mind, okay? It's interesting what Jesus calls them at the end of his life, no, end of his ministry, what he actually calls them. John 15. No longer do I call you. So for three and a half years, he treated them like servants. What does it mean? Were they serving him? No. The women who followed him served him. When he says, who is a servant? A servant is somebody who obeys the master without any questions. So you understand what discipleship is? He said, you are servants. I won't call you servants anymore. I won't call you servants anymore. You being discipled, you being trained. Now you have understood, you got the discipline in, now I shall call you friends. Okay? If you remember, another, we have to compare scripture, right? In 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. What does it mean? There is a prophet, but he was a servant first. His office of his prophet came later. Before that could happen, he had to be a servant to the prophet for years before he could be recognized as a prophet. So in the Old and the New Testament, we see discipleship involves strict discipline, which happens to only those who have left to follow. If you don't leave, you don't follow. If you don't leave, he cannot give you orders. In Luke 14, verse 25 to 27, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. The discipleship conditions are very clear. He said, you cannot be my discipleship unless you are willing to forsake everything, including your own rights to your own life. You cannot be my disciple. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 21, Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh, using the oxen equipment, gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became a prophet. Is that what it's written? Became a? Discipleship begins that way. If you are not willing to be a servant, you cannot be a disciple. So what we see today is crowds who follow Jesus and very few who take the yoke of discipleship. The yoke of discipleship. It's a yoke. That's the only time you have rest for your souls. He said, take my yoke upon yourself. You have rest in your souls, real rest, whatever you face, whatever situation, absolutely rest. Even though nothing is in your control, it comes from becoming a disciple and taking the yoke of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do the things which I say, why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
Because genuine discipleship will lead to genuine lordship. In the parable of the sower, what was different was the soil, not the seed. What does it mean? The soil is our heart, that we are very selective in choosing the areas where we want to be committed. And staying away from these areas which will be costly. That is the different kinds of soil. The hard ground, the rocky ground, the shallow ground and the good ground. The good ground also divided into three categories. What does it mean? If you ask me, are you a disciple? And you will say, yeah, I yeah. am. Why do you? You look back to your morning devotions. He says, every morning I read my Bible, I am a disciple. You live all the uncomfortable areas of your life where you have not surrendered at all and look at one area where you have surrendered and declare I am a disciple. That does not make a disciple. So today we will start looking at what it will take to become a radical disciple. Because every disciple is radical. Okay? John 17 and verse 18. And then Romans 12, 1 and 2. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Listen to Jesus talking about his disciples. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Then Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That thing, you do the first thing, you become a servant, and then he sends you wherever he wants to send you. This is surrender. But after surrender, when he sends you into the world, as the father sent the son into the world, he says, do not be conformed to this world. The disciple is in a very tricky situation. On one hand, he has to live and serve and witness in the world. On the other hand, he has to keep himself being contaminated by the same world. We are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. One way, Lord, I am holy because you are holy. You call me to be holy. So, okay, Lord, I am not going to the world. God says, no. You are sent to the world. Oh, the world is very unholy. Lord, if I go to the world, I am going to be unholy. God says, no, that's also not an option. That also is not an option. So both are forbidden to the true disciple of Jesus Christ. You can neither escape nor conform. You cannot escape the world. Because that's what a lot of people have done in the Middle Ages and all. They shut themselves in monasteries. The world is evil. And I am not going. I am going to shut myself in the monastery. That's what Indian sages also understood the evil nature of the world. They went away to the Himalayas. Even now if you go to the Himalayas, you will see people sitting there. Why? To escape. But God said, my disciples don't escape. They have to go right into the world. But you cannot conform to the world. This is one of the major themes of the world, of the Bible, old and new. Do not conform. 
Leviticus 18 verses 3 to 4 according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt you shall not do where were you in Egypt do you know what they did in Egypt yes you know it very well yes we lived there for 100 years we know very well but he says you will not do and where are you going kanan you know the canaanites yeah they are like the egyptians so according to the doings of the land of kanan where i am bringing you you shall not do shall not do nor shall you walk in their order they have their own ordinances shall not walk in their own ordinances you shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them i am the lord your god god says don't conform to egypt or canaan why was israel dispersed into captivity why In Ezekiel chapter 11 God tells verses 8 to 12 You have feared the sword and I will bring a sword upon you says the Lord You are afraid of the sword I will bring a sword upon you and I will bring you out of this midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments upon you Lord what are you saying he says yes you shall fall by the sword I will judge you at the border of Israel then you shall know that I am the Lord this city shall not be your caldron nor shall you be in the meat in this midst and i will judge you at the border of israel why because you did not keep my judgments i think it's the next verse for you have not yes you shall for you have not walked in my statutes nor executed my judgments in your life you don't walk in my statutes so i will let strangers judge you i'll get all your enemies to have victory over you translate this in spiritual terms in our lives why we fall why we fail because we do not execute the ordinances and the judgments of god in our own personal lives that's why jesus says even when it comes to prayer most common activity of any religious person of any religions god says in matthew 6 and verse 8 therefore do not be like them meaning don't pray like the pagans muttering 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 memorize mutter memorize mutter memorize there are many christian pagans memorize and repeat sometimes i want to do a miracle if god allows me go into all this anglicanized mainline churches and take their red book away and run away they would be lost without that book everything that is written in it is true everything fantastic but after 50 years lord have mercy christ have mercy lord have mercy christ have mercy are you praying we have paganized the true faith god says don't don't he says don't we are called to engage with the world without compromising or conforming to the world to be in the world but one one john 2:15 not loving the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not him we are supposed to be in the world teflon coating in our soul and mind nothing sticks 
Don't love the world or things in the world, but you have to be right there in the world. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Can choose your friend, God or world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And it also becomes spiritual adultery. Yet loving the people. Yet loving the people. Because God loves the people. God loves the people. So you have to love the people. Therefore you have to go into the world. That's where sanctification comes. In John chapter 17. Word 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So God, he says, sanctify yourself first. That's the reason you come here on Sundays. So you can be sanctified by the word and the spirit and the blood and then go tomorrow into the world. How are you sent? Sanctified. Separated. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus is saying, that's why when I teach leaders, I tell them, teachers, leaders are called to a higher level of sanctity because Jesus, who did not need it, sanctified himself for the sake of his disciples so that they would have a role model to watch. They would have a role model to watch. He sanctified himself for whose sake? The world had no effect on him at all. He went through his toughest temptation before he stepped into ministry. The devil couldn't tempt him with anything, but he sanctified himself, separated himself for whose sake? The disciples say, because he is teaching them. He's a real guru. He's a real teacher training his disciples how to sanctify yourself, how to be in the world, yet to be separate from the world. We are also sanctified and sent. Sanctified by the same word that sends us into the world. The same word and spirit that says, be holy is the same word and the spirit that sends us to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. Okay, there's no difference. The same word and the spirit says, be sanctified. The same word and the spirit says, go to the ends of the world. So what will you face when you try to obey your master? And be a true disciple. Okay. Now we are going to get into a semi-literature class. Because the world wants to make everyone into its own mold. Remember? Babylon, Daniel, King said, pick the young men with these seven qualities and start training them. After three years of training, I will test them. And then if they are good, they will enter into what? Babylonian civil service. Babylon wants everybody to be molded in the shape of Babylon. The world, this world, this spiritual Babylon wants everyone to be like it. And therefore, therefore, when you hear, when you see, when you react, How do you know what is true and what is not true? What are the blocks you will face when you try to be a disciple in this world? Listen carefully, okay? I'll try to simplify it for the younger ones. Okay? And sometime in life, if you end up in college, in a literature class, which I wouldn't advise, Hepsiba, okay? 
No, I know you like literature, but maybe not. Unless you are strong enough to stand like Eric Anna stood there without compromising. And was willing to take the mockery and the laughter. But philosophy, literature, humanities are dangerous grounds. Science is safer. Mess up with your mind. And every battle in life is either won here or lost here. The first block you will face in your situations. See, I will give you terms which you may not have heard. But when you explain the term, you will realize, huh, that's what my friend is. First block, or one of the blocks you will face is what I call pluralism. Now you know plural, singular, plural. I'm making it easy for you, okay? Your teacher, in, your professor in the college won't tell you singular, plural. He will say pluralism, okay? Singular is one, plural is many. Pluralism, what does it mean? Which means every ism has its own validity. It can stand on its own. There are many isms. There is communism. There is humanism. There is feminism. There is socialism. There is capitalism. There is casteism. There is racism. So many isms are there. And each one who is in that believes that is true. So somebody who believes in pluralism will believe, okay, your belief is as good as mine. And without realizing, your belief system rejects the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you. There are many capitalists sitting here in this church. If you actually understand how you think economics. There are communists might be here. There are feminists here. The problem is, when you have accepted these ideologies as truth, or true in itself, you read the word through it. And when you do it, you reject the lordship of Jesus Christ in that area. You reject the lordship of Jesus Christ in that area. That's the truth. So how do you deal with pluralism? Like I said, these are all battles in the mind. It is either lost here or won here. How do you battle? Anybody who has come from Kerala is 40-50 years old will know the ideology of Kerala. It's been intertwined with communism and Marxism. Because the first communist government that came through the ballot box in the world was in Kerala. 1956, the Communist Party won. EMS Nambudri Part became the first head of a state who was elected every other place in the world. Communists overthrew government through the gun. Ballot, first place, Kerala. And always, every five years, they have kept on coming back. So communism is intertwined with the church. And many priests and many of them are communists in their ideology and in their thinking. And you cannot escape communist thinking if you have grown up there. Because every street corner meeting, every week you will hear a communist preach. And they're powerful preachers. Preachers of their ideology. Powerful speakers. If you are in America 
and you've been in American, one of the red states, you're automatically a capitalist. And you believe in capitalism. So different ideologies shape people's thinking, but the problem is when Jesus Christ enters into your life, he wants lordship of all or nothing. And then suddenly you realize to be a disciple. That's why he says you will have to even to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Put aside your ideas and your thoughts and ideologies and listen to me as a lord and a servant if you want to be a disciple. Otherwise, no, you cannot be. You'll be always a follower who picks and chooses. So how do I fight? How do I contend with a thought in my mind which is very powerful, very appealing to the soul? So only contending it with a more powerful truth, which is called the truth. Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That is why Jesus did not say, I will show you the truth. I will teach you the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am the truth. Period. So we focus on the uniqueness and the complete finality of Jesus. Jesus is unique. You can pick any religious founder or any philosopher of any ideology. When it comes to Jesus, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh. What is communism? It's a logical system of thinking. What is feminism? Another logical system of thinking. What is capitalism? Another logical system of thinking. But he says, I am reason. And I became flesh. I am Logos who became flesh and dwelt among mankind. You want any ideology to make reason, first check with reason itself because I am reason. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's unique. He's absolutely unique because this is God who is word that became flesh. Founder of Buddhism, Buddha was a man. He never claimed to be God. Founder of Islam, Muhammad was a man. Never claimed to be God. Hinduism is a system of various thoughts with no gods. You can be anything. Primary text of Hinduism, Rig Veda talks about a God, one God, giving it a name, which basically means self-existing ones. But what is predominantly given in folk culture is Mahabharata and Ramayana, which are stories and myths, has illustrations to teach dharma or righteousness in the community, written by two sages called Vyasa and Valmiki. And in one of that is the discourse between Krishna and Arjuna about the battle that is going to take place between good and evil, which has become Gita. But the writers themselves say these are all fictitious creatures, characters, they are not real. So, Hindu religion There is no founder. There is no founder. Any ism you take, every founder is a human being. Therefore Christ is unique because he is God that became flesh. Not only is unique, he is also unique in atonement. He is the only one who died for the sins of mankind. 
Muhammad didn't die for the sins of mankind. Krishna, the most favorite, popular one, did not die for the sins of mankind. On the other hand, as you know by now, in Gita he says, Yuga to Yuga, I come to destroy the sinners and save the righteous. No philosopher has died for sinners. Nobody. He's unique in his atonement. He's unique in his resurrection, in his death and his resurrection. Nobody. When they were leaving, claimed they would rise. But after they died, rose. When he was living, from the first day of his ministry, till the end, he said, three days and no more. Not a fourth day, three days, three nights, and I'll be up. And he's the only one, he's unique in his resurrection, meaning he triumphed over death. And he's the only one who can save sinners. Who can only save sinners. Nobody can save sinners. Can any one of these, any one of these people claim he could save a sinner? No. Jesus looked at Mary and Martha and said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will not die. When if you die, you will rise again. Nobody said that. So he's unique. So we talk about Alexander the Great, Peter the Great, Akbar the Great, but nobody says Jesus the Great. Why? Because he's unique. He's the only one. You don't even ascribe great with him and make him common with the other greats. Have you ever heard anybody say Jesus the Great? No. You don't even say Jesus the Greatest, meaning he's one of them. No, he's not. He's the only one. The only begotten son of God. He's unique. That's how you defeat pluralism in your mind. Yes, these people are there. The ideas all all look good. But there's a problem. The problem is there is one who is unique. He is Logos. He is the wisdom. He is the thought. He is the reason. He is the logic behind everything. And if he doesn't agree with him and what he has taught, everything is a lie. He has no rival. And he has no successor. There is none like him before or there is none like him after. He's the only one. That's why on the day of Pentecost, on Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, when Peter finished his discourse about Jesus, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Savior. Both Lord and Savior. He's absolute Lord, absolute Savior. He can save you to the uttermost and he will take Lordship of your entire life. The cry of the people was, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? He saves and he rules over them he saves. This is the beginning of discipleship. What shall I do? As soon as the intellectual Jew called Saul of Tarsus, incredibly intellectual Jew, encountered Jesus of Nazareth, there is no more logic there. There is no more arguments there. Blinded by the brilliance of Logos. He bends his knee and asks, what shall I do? Simple instruction to a willing disciple. Go to the city, it will be told you. That's all. 
Will you please explain to me this in Torah and that in Talmud? Nothing. Nothing. No discourse there. Disciples are not born. They are made. And it is a choice. And be very sure there are very few disciples. What we have is followers at different levels. When you declare yourself a disciple, please don't look at your works. Good works. And decide that you are a disciple. Why? Why do I say so? Let me ask you this question. Did Moses dishonor God at Meribah? The second time when water was brought from the rock. Did Moses dishonor God? Yes. Yet, Numbers 20, verse 11 says, Moses lifted his hand, struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Though he dishonored and disobeyed God, was God compassionate to feed, to see that everybody drank? So your ministry should be, might be an act of compassion of God, though you may be a rebel. Because, God is a compassionate God. He sees the people thirsty. He sees the cattle thirsty. And he just quenches their third. Oh, you are counted a rebel. And you have dishonored God publicly. Let me ask you this question. Was Jonah a rebel? Absolute, the most stiff-necked prophet in the Old Testament. Yet in Jonah 4 and verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock. God says, I'm even compassionate about that cattle. Why should they die without a warning? I know you, you are a rebel. Stiff-necked prophet. But I will still use you to save others. So my ministry doesn't matter how successful it is, millions may be saved because millions thirst was quenched through Moses' action. Still doesn't make me a disciple. Because the danger is that, our danger is that we look at our ministry and if it is flourishing and crowds come, we immediately decide we are a disciple. But God says, not necessarily. The people are getting saved in your ministry because I am a compassionate God and I'm merciful God. He says, that's why I use you. That does not make us necessarily our disciple. Discipleship is connected with Lordship of Jesus Christ in our life, in whichever way he chooses. Once I met, I want to say his name, a Naga pastor who was a Baptist, got baptized in the Holy Ghost and God used him mightily incredibly mightily around the world, supernaturally used him. Where he had mid-air revivals at 30 feet, 1000 feet high in ocean intercontinental flights. Where the captain allowed him to preach to the entire set of people who were Germans and this Naga guy from India who didn't, doesn't even speak English properly stood there and German came in and people were repenting in the plane at 30,000 feet. Where the captain allowed the air hostess address system to speak. Incredible man. Then he told me something. I said, how did you begin your journey? He said, God sent to me to a pastor in Andhra. 
Pentecostal pastor. And I said, what did you do? He said, for the first two years, he made me look after his buffaloes to train me to be a disciple, whether I would obey or not. You get it? Peter, go. John, go. Go to that town. You will see a called. Untie it. Somebody asked him, just said, the master answered, bring it. No questions asked. No questions asked. What is he training you? He's training you to obey. Training you to obey. That's what a disciple is. We don't have disciples. Very rare disciples. Because they won't obey. Children won't obey parents. Men won't obey God. Women won't obey men. Nobody obeys. Everybody picks and chooses and says, I am a disciple. It's just you are not. You are not. You are saved. But on that day of much of your work, much will be shaved. Very little will be left because you will say, you are not a disciple. On Mount Moriah, Abraham became a radical disciple. Sarah for most of her life was a radical disciple. Mount Moriah, Isaac became a radical disciple. Moses was a radical disciple almost all of his life. Because the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not a debating matter for a believer. Non-believers, it doesn't matter. For Christians, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not a debating matter. The message of Peter on the day of Pentecost was very simple. Salvation, Lordship, separation, baptism and training begins. That's it, simple. What shall we do? He says, repent. Get baptized. Separate yourself from this corrupt generation. All who received this message were baptized. And they gathered daily for the apostles' teaching. No questions asked. Can we change the timing? Peter would say no. Why? Why can't you change the timing? Because you got baptized yesterday. What does that mean? You have no rights. You gave your rights to the Lord. Can you make it closer to my home? No. Why? If I make it closer to your home, you will be further away from his home. Disciples, understand what discipleship means. Okay? Discipleship. I'm giving you why. These are the things you will face when you go. You will be facing with pluralism. And you don't realize, even in your mind, you actually subscribe to pluralism. You may be thinking from a communist set of point or a Catholic set of mind or a feminist set of mind and you don't even realize you are pluralist in your thinking and you are not really under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus was very clear. He says anybody who wanted a disciple, he set the conditions. He said these conditions, you are a disciple, otherwise you are not a disciple. You are a follower. You are part of the crowd. Part of the crowd. Are we getting? So what is the first term, young ones? Singular, plural, pluralism. The second thing the disciples had to resist, and even today have to resist, is materialism. Now let me explain to you so that you don't misunderstand. This is a material world. We live in a material world. When we say reject, fight materialism, we are not fighting the material world. 
the earth and its fullness belongs to God. There is a visible world, even if it is invisible through a powerful telescope, you can still see it, right? So if you can see it with your naked eye, with the appropriate apparatus, that means it is part of a material world, meaning it's made of matter. What does it mean? Made of matter. All of us sitting here and what we are sitting on and standing on is all made of matter. Opposed to the material world is another world which is a spiritual world and spirit is doesn't have matter. Spirit doesn't have matter. If you go into an Oxford or Cambridge dictionary and check out the meaning of matter, which I did donkeys years ago, it means made of incorporeal matter. Meaning matter which is not matter. It's no matter there. So we have this Two worlds, one is spiritual and the other is material. Problem is because we are in the material world, whenever we talk about the spiritual world, we only try to think in material world. So we start wondering, how can the city be the bride? How can the city be the bride? And I saw the city come dressed like this bride. And the previous chapter talks about the bride is ready for her wedding and she is given garments. Lord, I am totally confused. That's because we are material in our thinking. Okay. God created the material world and we are part of the material world and we need much of, of the materials in the material world. But we are not talking about that. We are talking about first understand material world and the spiritual world. Understood the difference? Let you a strange Thing. But we know actually something about the spiritual world. We all have something or we see something which does not have matter. You know what it is? It's my shadow. My shadow has no matter. Does your shadow have matter? Does shadow have matter? Now let me ask you this question. Does anointing have matter? No. Anointing doesn't have matter, right? My shadow doesn't have matter. But anointing can rest on my shadow and people on which my shadow falls can get healed. That's why scripture says in Peter's shadow, people brought the sick ones and when his shadow fell upon them, they got healed because the anointing was on his shadow. Because anointing doesn't need matter and your shadow is not matter. Understand? Like a shadow of the Almighty. So I wonder how big he is. His spirit, your shadow is also not of matter. Learn to think spiritually so that we understand many, many concepts in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel. But we live in a material world and we use the materials in the world. That way, Christianity is the most material religion. Not materialistic. Material religion. Because it is in this religion alone where God became flesh. Spirit became matter. No other religion. Spirit became flesh. Our salvation is portrayed to us in material terms by baptism. Dunking you into water and taking you out. It is a material representation of a spiritual fact. Religion, there is no spiritual fact. There is no spiritual experience. Just material. 
In ours, spiritual is translated into material. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for our salvation. And we are the only religion who will use material objects to portray our spiritual truth. So that way, Christianity is the most material religion. That's why William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 19th century said, Christianity is the most material of all religions, but it is not materialistic at all. Least materialistic of all religion. What is materialism? It is a preoccupation with material things. And the problem is, it can choke your and my spiritual life. So a gift can operate. Okay? Gift can operate. Materialism can choke you while the gift operates. The most materialistic man, servant of God, prophet you can see in the Bible is Balaam. Three full chapters in the Old Testament is given to this man. Four major oracles or prophecies are recorded in detail by this man. Incredible prophecies where he will even prophesy about the coming Jesus Christ. In Numbers chapter 24, 70 to 19, I see him. Who is saying this? An extremely materialistic, extremely covetous man who is after gold, is seeing through his gift. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemy shall be a possession, while Israel does Valiantly, out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Who saw this? An incredibly materialistic prophet. So you can be extremely materialistic where your spiritual life is being choked out yet operate on a gift. Stunning prophecies, incredibly materialistic man, covetous man. That is why we have to beware of gifts. And use it very carefully in proportion to the grace we have received. In proportion to the life of God we have received. Stunning his prophecies are. But what does scripture say about his end in Joshua 13? The children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam. Cut him down. Because he is the one who used a real gift for money making. Soothsayer. If a Gentile comes to him, he will use that God-given gift to prophesy about them and take their offering. If a Jew comes to him, he is willing to use the gift with them too. Soothsayer. That's a record of how materialism can ultimately kill you. Jesus warned us about this in Matthew 6 verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Do not lay. A disciple obeys. The follower decides whether to obey or not according to the situation and according to the paycheck. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break 
in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. It is about lordship. God says if you worship God, you cannot worship mammon. But if you worship mammon, if you are after money, then the problem is even the light within you is darkness. The very Bible that you read and the very understanding you get is actually darkness and not light. Why? Because you are serving another master. He will hide it from you. That's the danger of materialism which the disciple faces. And they were very materialistic though they had left hoping to reap a harvest when Jesus gets his kingdom. But once the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes, they realize what discipleship is, what the kingdom is. For the first statement, Peter and John will say is, silver and gold we do not have, but we have Christ. And he's more than enough. More than enough. So a true disciple is the one who possesses Christ and will never allow gold to possess him or her. That's what he's saying. If you are covetous, materialistic, the light in you. Young ones sitting over there, second row, the light in you will be darkness. You may save others. Like Balaam saved Israel through his prophecy, but you will destroy yourself. In Luke 12 and verse 15, he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So that's not life. That's not life. God through Paul will tell the disciples in Philippians 4.11, all the disciples within the body, not that I speak in regard to need for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says it doesn't matter whether I have or don't have. I know one thing. I am content. In First Timothy chapter 6 verses 6 to 10, Now godliness with contentment is a great thing for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and a snare. That is why I said when you make a choice of your profession ask very well why do you choose it? Why do people choose certain professions? Because at the end of the day, you know, they will get make more money. And more money means you can afford more things. More things. That is not the pursuit of education in the original form. Education is to so that we know God better and serve Him better. But that's not what education means today. That's not what education means today. Parents make decisions for their children. Children make decisions for themselves. It's all based on this. I want to be rich. But God says the process you will fall into many temptations and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Everybody in their minds and their hearts have foolish and harmful lusts. Everybody is common. It's a flesh. Flesh level, everything is common. But the problem is you don't have the money. What do you don't have? You don't have the money. Tiger Woods had the money. 
says, even if it comes to a divorce, no problem, 50 million payoff. I can pay off because I got hundreds. I have the money. I have the money. When you have the money, you have the power. Why are you after money? So the poor fellow who is doesn't have money but has lust will buy whatever you call it, the bong or whatever in which rat poison is mixed and which is cheap. But the fellow in the Tollywood movie star buys the refined cocaine because he has money. But the bottom level and the top level you are the same. If you had the money, you would have bought that. And if he didn't have the money, who would have bought this? At the bottom level and the high level, they're all the same. God says, why do you want to be rich? Does your wealth give you autonomy from God to make decisions? Are you a disciple? That's the question. Are you a disciple? Abraham was a disciple on Mount Moriah. The richest man probably in Canaan. God says, take your son, only son. No debate, no argument. Lord, do you want 20,000 rams? Do you want 15,000 camels? Do you want 30,000 bulls? Without a word, I will give it to you. Do you really mean you want my son? No questions, Lord. My son, my son. I'm a disciple. My wealth is at your disposal. Ask. Understand what scripture says. And verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed away from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through many, 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 many sorrows. And we need to face, why, why is this important? Because the disciple who is first sanctified by the word and the spirit is sent into a materialistic world and he has to stand there and fight the lust of materialism every day by saying, I am absolutely content with what my God gives me. I'm absolutely content. I'm not going to seek these things. I'm not going to waste money on these things. I'm happy with what my God has. He's meeting all my needs. He doesn't have to meet my greed. Because you are sent into a materialistic world. The disciple is not sent to the mountains. He's sent into the valleys. He's not sent into the forest. He's sent into the cities. But if materialism gets in, the problem is you and I will compromise our message. That is the origin of the prosperity gospel. They have compromised the gospel because they are materialistic and covetous in their thinking. So they have to change the whole thing and put it across in such a wonderful way. God is the king and he owns all the cattle. I am the son of the king. So I should be living in a palace, 20 million dollar estate. I should be flying a jet because my father is the king. But the father when he sent his son, he came as a servant. And he said to those who wanted to follow him to discipleship, foxes have holes, birds have nests, meaning I guarantee you nothing. Except eternity and a crown in eternity. You may, you may not have. There are no guarantees in this. According to your situation, according to your circumstances, I will call you. Are you willing to obey my call? Obey my call. That's why John will say, Paul said this, John will say in John 2.15, Do not love the world or the thingies, all those thingies in the world. All the things in the world. So there has to be an answer, right? 
The answer to pluralism is singularity in the mind. Christ is unique. Christ is the only one. He is exalted above everything else. Any idea that opposes Christ, I pull it down and I lift Christ. That is singularity in thought. That's why God says, I have exalted my word above all my name because many will come to you in my name and cloaked under the garb of the gospel will preach to you communism. If you go to Latin America, from the church pulpits, they will preach you communism, which is called liberation theology. Theology, liberation, by the power of the gun. It's communism. But the singularity is when you have lifted the word of God. So you will hear socialism, you will hear communism, you will hear capitalism, you will hear feminism, you will hear every... Some of the people who have spent 50 years every day, 8 to 9 years working on the Bible, studying the Bible, incredible interpretation, I'm not mentioning the name, incredible interpretation, but when you go into the fine print on certain areas, he will say it is against the law of God for a black to marry a white. He's racist. Because in Christ there is no black or white. But he's a white man. Writing after all the studying of the word of God for 50 years, when it that come to it, he's not able to break that barrier because he has not allowed the lordship of Jesus Christ into his life in that area. I have his Bible at home, very well known. But you will not see it unless you have read through it because it's very fine print, small note on a particular area in that Bible. For you to read, find that place, it will take you 25 years to find where he has written that then you will know how our thinking is. What am I inside? How do I see the truth of God? Have I allowed? That's why I tell people in India, oh wow, you are so happy. Why you did not hear five Hindus got saved? I said, yeah, really saved? What are they? Oh, they are from the lower caste. You are very happy. Okay, tomorrow when your daughter is of age, will you let that boy marry her? Faster, what are you saying? I said, exactly what I am saying. You are a racist and a casteist in your heart. You haven't accepted the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because even if God were to come and tell you, give your son to that girl, you will not give. Because you have said, Lord, this far and no more. Ideologies. We don't even realize who we are until we are faced with that situation. That is why a disciple has laid everything at the feet and says, I rise up with no rights. The Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. Ask Peter. Peter, what happened to you in the church in Galatia? Oh, you were eating with all the Gentile believers, worshipping, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then a new company came from Jerusalem. And are all Jewish believers. Suddenly Peter is, what will they think about me, Jewish believer, eating with Gentile believers? He started slowly separating and staying. Paul stood up and said, Peter, you are wrong. You are wrong, Peter. You cannot do this. Christ cannot be divided. Stood up. Stood up. Get your theology from the book written by the Theos. Theos means God. Not from man. Not from man. The man disagrees with the word of God. Disagree with the man. But agree with God. So the answer to materialism is simplicity of life. And the reason why I should be simple? Because of the great commission. What is the great commission? Go to the ends of the earth. 
That's the reason you and I choose a life of simplicity in the midst of a materialistic world. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 16, Paul says, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, I cannot sleep. If I don't preach the gospel, I feel condemned. How can I not preach this news when people are dying and going to hell? I cannot hold this inside. I have to let it out. Because people are dying. According to statistics of WHN, you are known every single day, at least 20 to 25,000, which they know of, die of starvation alone. What? Starvation alone. The most Christian nation on earth, United States of America, wastes each day enough food to feed the starving rest in the world. Ways. When people die of hunger and poverty in this country, hundreds and thousands and thousands of tons of rice and wheat are rotting in the warehouses because the government doesn't give it free to the people because it will affect the economy of the rich. What's your ideology? Do you know how much goes? Ask the government. Put a RTI, you will get out how many million tons is gone waste in the government of India warehouses. Why will they not give it out poor to the poor? Because the rich farmers will be affected. We have to keep the price up in the market. We cannot give anything free. Let him die. Where does your ideology come from? Does it come from God? When you waste your money as a Christian, Throw away stuff and keep buying stuff which you don't need. Have you have a necessity? Put on your heart to preach the gospel, knowing that to preach the gospel you need money. You need money? Do we ask these questions? Are we serious about these questions? Are we serious? Christ was serious. His disciples were not serious. They were just following him, not getting the lessons. I always read those portions in the Bible and says, Peter and John, what were you thinking about when it is written at the end of the meeting, they all went home and Jesus went to the mountain to sleep. What were you thinking of? That you didn't even ask Jesus, where are you going to sleep tonight? They didn't ask, they just went home. What are you going to eat tonight? They didn't ask. The one even when they came to arrest him said, don't touch them, take me. Don't touch them. Think, think, when you read scripture, you need to ask these questions. Am I a good steward of God's resources? The cattle belongs to him. The gold and silver are mine, not mine, his. Not yours, his. Am I a good steward? Woe unto me. Woe unto me. If I don't preach the gospel. Everybody doesn't preach the gospel. How can they hear unless somebody preach? How can he preach unless he is sent? Most of the people are involved in the business of sending. And in sending, you need money. You need money. Do we think? Do we think? So it comes to stewardship. Really stewardship. 
We all know it. All of us in our heads know it and we know exactly what we will do in our own situations. If you are a father, if you have a mother, your income is 20,000 or 25,000, whatever, it doesn't matter. If your only child falls ill and it's a long-term illness, using heavy medical costs, you will cut costs in every area to meet his need because you love your child. God says the ones who are dying on the streets are my children. Do you care? Do you care? You call me father, right? I'm your father, right? I'm your son, right? Do you care? I tell every place where I go to the, to the pastors, I said, my liberty came. Every one of you will stand there and say, God is my father, his wallet is my wallet. I said, no, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is when God can say, my wallet is his wallet. I decide your spending, not you, my spending. Can you say, Lord, this is your wallet. We share the same account. You decide the spending. You are my head, right? You are my head, right? Christ, the head of man. You decide my spending, Lord. We are not talking about being an ascetic. No. We are talking about the simplicity of life because the burden of the gospel is laid upon our souls. Upon the souls. We have to think, we have to think if the life that I have received from above is a new life then my lifestyle also has to be new. It can't be old. The rich, the one who is truly rich is the one who is rich towards God. That's why he told the rich man, you fool! You're talking about building new barns, you will die tonight. Because one reason, you were not rich towards me. God wants my money? No, he wants me, my money to spend it for his work. As he says, no, write over my money, Lord, it's your money. You are the Lord of my life. It includes everything. It includes everything. The rich man was poor towards God. So he was poor. In his death. He was rich towards himself in life. And poor towards God. But when he died. He was poor in death. That is now begging for a drop of water to wet his tongue. He cannot even afford that. There is nobody to bring it for him now. You are not preaching a social gospel either. You are preaching a gospel. Of the simplicity of life. When you go into a materialistic world. How do you break it? What you don't need. You don't need. You don't need. As long as it is good. Why do you want to throw it away? I tell my pastors love me because of that. That's the reason. Not just my preaching. They said pastor we have seen. I said yeah. It's 12 years old. Still good. I don't need to buy another. You should have buy another. It's good. I wash it regularly. And I don't give it to my maid. I don't put it in the machine. I hand wash it so it will last. Almost all my clothes I wash by myself. Because maids don't do, they don't care about the clothes. If it tears, how does it bother them? It bothers me because I don't want to buy another. Because I need money for other purposes. I decided these things long time ago and I don't enforce it on anybody, not even on Vijay. Though Vijay has started his dressing, have you noticed? It's very formal these days. 
He said, Pastor, I also want to learn. I want to be formal. I said, good, stick to that. You never have to change. Things will change in this world. Stick to that one pattern, which my father taught me when I was young. He says, this will go like this. This will go like this. You stick to mine, you will save a lot of money. Save a lot of money. Simple things. Reason. Simplicity for simplicity's sake? No. Simplicity for the preaching of the gospel. Lord, gospel. Of the gospel. Simplicity. That's the reason. God will give us what is what we need. He's promised it. In First Timothy chapter 4 verse 4 scripture says, For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. He says, nothing is to be refused. Meaning it's been given to you. You are not demanding. It will be given to you. Don't worry. Don't ask what animal it is. Just take it. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. In many places where I have gone, you don't want to know. One, you don't want to know what animal is. Second, you don't want to know when it was killed. Ask no questions. You will hear no answers. You don't want to hear. 6.17 scripture says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Showing all your gadgets and changing your gadget. Not to be haughty. Don't show it. It's worth nothing. Do not trust in uncertain riches. Do not put your trust in uncertain riches. But in the living God. Riches are very, very uncertain. Do not put your trust in it. We are called to freedom. That's a new life from covetousness. That's why Jesus said, Paul repeated, which is not in the Gospels, but Paul said, maybe Jesus told him, because probably he couldn't tell it to Peter and John, but he could tell it to Paul. He said, the Lord said in Acts 20 verse 35, remember the Lord said, it is more blessed to give than to receive, because by every, by, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord. Why do you work? And who supports you? Christ. You may be doing the same work, but change the way you think about your work. Why do you work? Why do you work? First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. These are all teachings in the Bible. We are called to that freedom. That's why God said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Christ shows the way in Second Corinthians Chapter 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. He was king of heavens, came as a poor man, so that through his poverty we would become sons of God. Disciples look at the master and follow his own path and says, Lord, I'm denying a lot of things in my life which I don't need, that through my poverty, Others can become sons and daughters of God, like you did for me. That's the, that's the path he shows. The church, the new church in the book of Acts shows the new life and the new lifestyle. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, the multitude of those who believed are of one heart, one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Nobody held on to anything, though it was their own. Nobody said it was their own. 
disposal. Voluntary. The apostles never made any demands like today's preachers. Never made any of those demands. Give, 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 give. They never said. But the people said, it's yours, 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 yours. And he said, you have the right to keep. It's yours. Everything in the kingdom of God is voluntary. There's no demand. There is no coercion. There's a teaching. But no demand. In Acts chapter 5 and verse uh, 4. While it remained, was it not your own? Peter says, you didn't have to give an offering. It was yours. After it sold, was it not still yours? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? He said, my issue with this, you lied. You didn't have to give. You didn't have to give. It was yours. God doesn't demand anything which you don't want to willingly give. Listen. But you are doing this as a hypocrite to put a front and you have lied to the Holy Spirit. That's why you are being judged. You didn't have to give. There's no coercion in the kingdom of God. If you want to give, that's why God says you love a cheerful giver, not a covetous giver. But scripture says this transformed their hearts. The new life transformed the hearts of the people. In chapter 4, there was, was, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessed of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. Why did nobody lack? They had possessions. I don't need this. Sell it. Sell it. Do you really think Christians in India don't have land for churches? But they won't give. So most of the churches meet in rented places. Most Christians in India, the well-to-do ones have plenty of land, but they will not give. And they come and say, Hallelujah. God says, you are waiting. You come there. I will also assign you a place. This is not compulsion. That is communism and socialism. It's not compulsion. It's a heart that has been touched by what God has done. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians, not 1. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. What is this grace? You're good in all this. Very good. But he says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He says, I'm not giving you any commandment. In this there is, this particular area, there is no commandment. I will say, grow in knowledge. It is a commandment. Grow in wisdom. Grow in forgiveness. All that is a commandment, but not in this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give you advice. It is your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete doing of it that there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is a first, a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. He says, first thing is that, do you have a willing heart to give? That's the first thing he says. Do you have a willing heart to give? If you have a willing heart to give, then it's according to what you give, not what you don't have. For I do not mean others should be eased and you burdened. But I am, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. This is not communism. 
where forcibly the money is taken by the rich and given into the poor. That is called communism, socialism. God says a giving heart will look for equality in the body of Christ so that those who have will try to elevate the sufferings of those who do not have. This is not a command. I'm just asking you, have the mind of Christ so there is equality in the body of Christ which is voluntary and it is given because the love of Christ has touched your heart. Do you see? But if I am materialistic, there is no equality. And materialistic people give. I am not saying materialistic people in the church don't give. But what they give is leftovers. I said that to somebody last week. They give. They give huge. They give very nice. But if you look at what they actually give, they give from what they are content and whatever is remaining they give. What happens if God gave us leftovers? He gave his best, his son. There may be equality. We don't lay down rules for others, but only for self. That's why he's saying it's not a command, but I have to teach you this. Discernment between necessity and luxury. Between something that is really creative and an empty status symbol. Between that pertains to your modesty and something that pertains to your vanity. Ask God for discernment. Lord, if I buy this, does it help in my modesty which pertains to your holiness or does this pertain to my vanity which feeds my flesh? Between the service of God and slavery to fashion, we draw a line. We draw a line. Because you're going into that world. You're going into that world. A materialistic world. Dog eat dog world. Where it is all about things. You are judged by what you wear, what you have, what gadget you have, what is the status, which model it is, everything. That's the pressure these young people face. Pressure. Incredible pressure. I used to know a dear old lady. Dear, dear old lady. Wonderful lady. She was traveling in a, I told this before, she was traveling in a Chennai suburban train. That's the, she used to travel retired, wearing a white sari and slippers. But because she's old and fragile, she had a first class pass. And when you get into the first class pass, into the coupe, you see all the ones with bangles and 20,000 sari and all, those days. Now everybody has chauffeurs. And she was sitting there quietly, looking at all of them. Feeling a little bad about her life. And the Lord spoke to her and said, Do you know what I have did for you? In your generation, weren't you a doctor? Yes, Lord. Didn't you do your MD? Yes, Lord. Did you get a PSC from Oxford? Yes, Lord. Weren't you the first professor of this huge department in this most famous medical college? Yes, Lord. And why are you like this? Because I gave everything for you, Lord. So why are you feeling ashamed of me? He said, all they have to fond is their wealth, nothing else. That is why I am tough on you. Because you will go into a world where you can never, never match with them with their things. But you should be able to stand in any crowd and be able to say, I don't have gold, I don't have silver, but what I have, you cannot match. I have the knowledge of the Holy One. I have the knowledge of the Holy One. That cannot be bought. It's priceless. It cannot be bought.
cannot be bought. Money can't buy that. That is to what I want to introduce you young ones into. Because you will go. You will go into places where you will never be able to match anybody's wealth. And the gadgets and the stuff, what they buy, what they drink, what they wear. What, don't even try it. Leave it alone. Like Daniel draw a line very clearly. Those things mean nothing. Nothing. What means is, is what are you inside? What are you inside? Understand. Because the credibility of our message is diminished. If we are materialistic in our life. How can I proclaim the salvation of my Lord when I myself am a greed, slave to greed? Ask. So mammon is another God. And covetousness is idolatry in the Bible. And the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was not because they were homosexuals alone. That was a symptom. That was a result of something that was inside Why which God is saying any covetous person, if my restraining hand is to be taken off, you will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah judged for their sin, for their iniquity? What does scripture say in Ezekiel? Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. She had pride, plenty of money. Plenty. Never thought. Two minutes. I struggle outside to buy a bottle of water. Because I know bottled water in India is more expensive than milk. I don't buy. Never do I buy. Why waste money? Drink at home and go. And I kind of hold it until I get back home. Because you have to walk through the streets of India like I have done through Havra and Kharagpur and Mumbai and all. And you see those people lying over there. Tata Memorial Cancer Hospital. You go through the streets. All cancer patients in their hundreds waiting over there. You want to waste money? I can't feed them. But I can help somebody to give them the gospel. That their soul may be saved. Do we think stewardship? Do we think of souls? This was the sin of your sister Sodom. Fullness of pride. Plenty of bread. Fullness. Lot of money. Abundance of time on your hand. I see people so much time on their hand. Nothing to do. Not that you have nothing to do. There are things you can do but you won't do it. And saddest Didn't care like the rich man of Lazarus who was dying of hunger at his gate and his sickness where the dogs were licking. Passed by him every day. Who cares? Now when he is dead and in hell his attitude hasn't changed. He says, can you ask Lazarus as if he's your servant now? Attitudes don't change after death. The final judgment of Jesus, the final judgment of Jesus is on similar lines of faith which did not have a new life. In Matthew 25 he says, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger take you in naked and clothe you? 
Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, As shortly I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you did it to me. Least of your brother. That's why I dislike today's form of transport to which I am forced to go. You have to travel in Indian railways to understand India. Old days, even now. I loved sleeper class, then alone, sat at the, at the door of the passenger train, sat with them because that's where the beggars come. The little fellow who comes, sings like this and polish the shoes, make him sit down there next to you, give him a 10 rupee note and ask him where did you come from. He says, I don't remember. When I was this big, I was with these people. I don't know where my home is. What will you do this with this money? Tell me the truth. I won't get angry with you and take it back. What will you see? He says, are you sure? Yes. I want to go for a movie tonight. That is his escape. When this upgradation came, free upgradation came, Uncle will, Brother Banu will know it when, if there are vacant seats in the AC and the chart is down, they will upgrade you from sleeper class to third AC. So when you sit in third AC or second, third AC, you will see this poor man who was traveling in sleeper has been upgraded. He went to the sleeper, they told him, no, your seat is there. He's coming with his little bag. He has never got into the AC where all people are and they're all looking at him. Even the TT I have seen tried to fool him by saying, you have to give 100 rupees. And I told him, you don't have to give, it's an upgrade, you sit down there. You understand India? Have you walked this land? Have you seen this land? Have you seen? Does it move it? I'm not saying you need to go and feed all of them. We can't. Jesus said the poor will be always there. But you can do some part in reaching the gospel to them. Reaching the gospel. But our struggle is we live compartmentalized lives. Very clear. We proclaim Christ and serve mammon. We want to be the servant of Christ and the friend of the world. It's our problem. That's why the call to discipleship. It's a call. It's a call to discipleship. You learn this on the way. As you go along, you learn and he says, touch here, touch here, touch here, touch here, Lord. Is there anything, Lord, where I haven't surrendered yet? He'll say, ah, this you haven't surrendered. This you haven't surrendered. This you haven't surrendered. So this morning, we are coming to a table which is a material symbol of one who surrendered everything and kept nothing away from us. Absolutely nothing away from us. It's a symbol. Coming to the table. His body and his blood. Symbols of his body and his blood. So when you come to this table, be very careful as you partake of it. Ask God. He cleanses you. He will cleanse your heart. He cleanse your mind. Ask him, Lord, help me, Lord. Help me. Help me, Lord. Help me. Show me. You don't have to wait two days, three days. Don't have to wait two, three days. Today, the word that can save you is very near you. That's what it says in Deuteronomy and in Romans. 
The word that can save you is very near you. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is my savior. Is that what is written? Jesus is? Lord. Lord. All the areas I am aware of, I invite you and I ask you, Lord, come and take Lordship. Lordship. Lordship, Lord. Help me to be a true disciple in my walk. Help me to see life and the world as you see it. Help me. I draw no lines for you. I Lord Ryan's Lord for me. You take over completely. I put restrictions on my life, Lord, that I might serve you truly. Each day as I go, I know, Lord, I am growing in my discipleship. I'd ask the elders to come and ask the rest to prepare. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, please do not partake when the emblems come. Let it pass because it brings judgment otherwise. And have the worship team here. Shall we pray? Father, we just come to you this morning. Remembering Calvary. The cross always before us. That you never kept anything away from us. You gave your everything. So that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. Father, I pray as your people, we your people, your children partake of this I pray it will bring healing to our body to our soul it will bring deliverance to those who are oppressed it will bring liberty to those who are in bondage for this reason you came to set the captives free do your supernatural sovereign work among your people Lord for in Jesus name we pray Amen before time. Does that happen? Maybe in a school, not in the church. I'm looking at all these children and thinking, Pastor, you spoiled my day. 
how will i go shopping we love shopping right god says something i'll tell you he says something he says you fathers being evil know how to give good things to your children how much more will your father in heaven thing is that he said don't worry what to eat what to drink what to wear so that's a major concern but he says you don't have to and the thing is that when god gives there's something about his hands they are holy what you receive from his hands usually will not cost you anything because he's paid for it to its holy we are told to seek something righteousness in the two things you heard today pluralism and materialism righteousness in your thinking and righteousness in ownership and he promises you he will give you and tell you it doesn't matter the father knows what we need and he will give you it's something which i have experienced for 25 years of my life that's why there is no this thing do you see these shoes It's from Italy. The socks is from Korea. This is from London Marks and Spencers. This watch is from Korea. I have bought this belt is from Korea. I have never bought or asked anything. The faster I give it away, the faster it keeps coming. I'm telling you. You don't need stuff from those places. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that you can never lose with god but you have to decide like paul decided i am content in all situations all situations i'm content i am not going to be greedy i'm not going to go after things i am going to go after my god i'm going to go after my god so you learn two things today one is in your thinking we are not pluralistic we are singular christ he takes the exalted place and everything is judged in proportion to him second we are not materialistic we live in a material world we use the material things which god has given us but we are not materialistic because we realize we hold everything in stewardship stewardship and you always you will realize the power of scripture powers when my children were small there's something which i taught them when they were very small and they were with me and i taught them i always used to tell them as a parent this is how much dad has It's all dad has and we need to live within this when it was their birthdays i experimented with scripture and what i used to do was when their birthdays i used to we'll say we'll do it this way this year they said okay we used to buy stuff we wrap it up and one at the back in the scooter one in the front of the scooter and we used to go down the streets and the evening and we would give those gifts to all the beggars under the places and i said we will practice this because it is written it's better to give than to this and they were excited and they were children if you don't spoil them they will continue being excited because there is more joy in giving than in receiving It's more joy actually that joy lasts forever when you get something how long does it joy last but when you keep giving the joy just because you light up many faces so this power in scripture this power in scripture but you will only experience his power when you ex- practice it and continuously make it a life habit to keep practicing it keep practicing it you can make it 
Scripture has power. And your father in heaven owns everything. He will not let you starve unless he has a reason to make you starve so that you learn some principles. I'm not saying he will not. Because Paul talks about many of his experiences where he was starving. But God was teaching him through it all. So God as a father will never let you, a child, go through anything without a lesson in it. As soon as you learn the lesson, you are out of it. He's not punishing you unless you're walking in sin. Then he's disciplining you, but he's teaching you. So pluralism, materialism. We have time for one more. It's called the third thing you will face, especially your generation, is called narcissism. You know what narcissism is? Narcissus was a, it's a Greek mythology, was a young guy who was incredibly good looking. Unbelievably good looking according to the mythology. So one day he went to a pool to drink water and saw his reflection, didn't know it was his reflection. He thought it was a water nymph and fell in love with his own image. And sat there pining and pining and pining and died. Because he saw his, it's a story so you don't have to say, Okay, it's just a story. No real person. Okay. What is narcissism? It's an excessive love for self. And it's a part of the New Age movement. And the prosperity gospel is part of it. See, you love yourself, therefore you want to indulge in yourself. But how do you do deal with guilt? God has put guilt in your head. So how do you deal with guilt? So you have to argue to yourself that God wants me to be rich. Shirley MacLaine. Not Shirley MacLaine, I mean Die Hard, but Shirley MacLaine. A pioneer, one of the pioneers of New Age movement. Any movie buff laughs, you will know he's seen that movie, okay? <laughs> pioneers of... New Age movement. This is what she said. I'm reading, quoting. I know that I exist, therefore I am. I know God force exists, therefore it is. Since I am a part of that force, I am that I am. New Age movement. I am that I am. I love to exist for myself. Scripture says there are only two commandments. Jesus said, love God with all your heart. Love your Neighbor as yourself. They have added a third one. Love yourself. You will hear it on TV. There is no third commandment. Love yourself. Second one says love your neighbor as you love yourself. Meaning you would want him exactly what you want for yourself. That would mean sacrifice from your side where equality comes. Within the body of Christ. See, when you love yourself as the third commandment, or for many people it's the first commandment, then you move into the perilous times prophesied in Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. You become a lover of yourself. I'm telling you children, children sitting over here, before you ever ask anything from your parent or your guardian, first ask your parent, Dad, can you really afford it? His parents sometimes never say Never say. Never say. Never. Most parents will not. Always ask, Dad, do you have the money? To buy it? If you only have it, and if you have money, and you think I need it, give me what you can afford. 
you're not a lover of yourself don't be a lover of yourself because when scripture talks about god's love which the greek term is agape it is the sacrifice of self not the love of self the sacrifice of self in the service of others but what we see today is the sacrifice of others in the pursuit of self everybody knows love is the greatest the 13th century missionary to muslims in north africa wrote this he who loves not lives not he who loves not lives not that's why john 3:16 is the most well known verse in the bible what does it say no 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 read slowly god so so what did he do he gave what did he do he gave not that he took he gave what did he give his only son god so loved the world he gave not one of his angels his only son his best his only begotten son his greatest treasure are we a narcissist are we when we look in the mirror what do you see those those lines we have heard we read make any sense in our heads that i complained i had no shoes until i saw a boy who had no feet that's those things ring in our ears are we caught in the love of self cuz you are to be a disciple a witness a testimony in a world which is full of self love and the epitome of it is selfies it's a selfie generation a generation that has achieved nothing but has the most record of nothing every activity is been recorded on their phone and been put on public square when they have done nothing in life no achievements when our forefathers did so much and they have nothing to show and yet they did so much and we do so little or hardly anything or nothing but every day selfie after selfie is going why because we are lovers of self you are lovers of self and this is the world you are going into this is the world you are called to stand as a witness witness self loving children self loving parents self loving parents i'm telling you honestly today's parents i'm not talking about in the church in general are so sad the way they haggle about dowry put a money lender to shame i'm talking about christians they haggle and they bargain think those things get these things all clear in your head and say i take a stand i want to be very sure my love is right it is a love that sacrifice not a love that indulges in self 
Son of man did not indulge in self, even when he had the power to indulge in self. He had all the power. He would multiply five loaves of bread and feed a multitude, yet wouldn't turn one stone into bread to feed himself. That's my savior. That's my savior. Think, what am I in this generation? What am I? Am I a narcissist? Am I a lover of myself? Simple thing. All CBI, FBI investigations when they are, when they are investigating a crime, you know what they check? Check the money trail. In every crime money is involved. All you have to check is, this is suspect number one, two, three, four. Okay, check their bank accounts. Where is money coming? Where is money going? Usually you can find the criminal. You want to find the criminal in you? Find where you spend your money. Find where you spend your money. Then ask yourself why you are so unhappy, unfulfilled and so empty. And you will see most people spend money on themselves. Or keep it away for a future security because they don't trust God. Don't do anything because I say you need to know your God to do this. Any month you can come to me and I will show you my bank accounts. Every month, every bank account is minimum balance. Because I know my father. I know my father. And I have known him all these years. One area I have been tested and have found him true, faithful, is in finances. There is no fear. Because that's the area where he said, test me. Test me. And I tested him. Come through. Always. If you are faithful with your money. We are afraid of finances because we are not faithful with our money. We are not good stewards. Don't be a lover of self. Don't. Don't. Don't be caught up in the self and the selfie generation. Say that I am not. I am not. I am not saying that you shouldn't take a few selfies. Do it once in a while. But don't be that generation obsessed with yourself so that you forget who your neighbor is. You don't even know who your neighbor is. Forget to love him or her. Too caught up. And some people who are not obsessed with themselves is obsessed with their misery. That's another narcissistic. Obsessed with their misery that they don't see there are more miserable people around them. Can you imagine Paul and Silas in the prison in Philippi being so miserable? Nobody would have been free that night. Can you imagine Joseph being so miserable in the prison he would have never been able to minister to the baker and the butler and then one day become prince of Egypt. Miserable. Like Jacob. Oh, that is my son. Oh, he's dead. I don't want to live. I want to die. 21 years living like a dead man. My son is dead. Narcissistic fool. Then 21 years later, somebody comes and says, your son is alive. And he wakes up and says, I am alive. What did you do with 21 years? Nothing written in the Bible about your 21 years. Obsessed with yourself. You got 11 other sons waiting over there. Why didn't you say, okay, one son is dead, let me take care of the 11. No, my soul is tied with this one. 
The boy is prospering nicely. You are worshipping self. Don't be a narcissist. Don't be in love for yourself. It's a dangerous, dangerous trap of the 21st century world. Very dangerous trap. I don't go into the sixth one because we do not have time. The sixth one is called, sorry, the fourth one is called relativism. You know what relative is? My relative. Right? You know, I'm explaining to you simple terms. Okay? Narcissism means love of self. Relativism means you know what relative is. Right? So, instead of relating to God, you relate everything you hear to each other. It's a very dangerous thing. The crowd is going that way, so I can go with the crowd. All of them are going in that so All of them can't be wrong. Every truth you hear, you relate it sideways. You don't relate it this way. What if Daniel had been a relativist? He said, all the princes of Judah are all eating the same food, so they must be, how can I be right and they all be wrong? Getting the danger? And we don't even realize, we sit in the church, we hear the word over and over and over again, and we all believe in relativism. We don't stand up and say, but it is written. But this is what scripture means. But this is what Jesus would do. You see? That's what Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by their truth, by your truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me give you an example. Simple example. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Heard that? Next one. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Heard that? So who defines marriage? God. But there are plenty of Christians who believe homosexual marriage is alright. I'm not talking about others. I'm not talking about including pastors and bishops. It's fine. It's okay. You know why? You have become relativist in your thinking. Huge chunk of the Christian world don't believe in this anymore. And our parents sitting over here. Parents sitting over here. All parents, Christian parents sitting over here. How many of you believe a man should leave his father and his mother? You believe the girl should leave? Don't you? Which is written in Psalm 45. The girl should leave. But first what does God say? God says the girl will leave. She is waiting to leave. The problem is getting the man to leave. And you look around. Nobody has left. So it's okay if I don't leave. God says, I'm speaking to you. Do you believe? This is where the problem comes. We are not sanctified by the truth. Abraham Edel, the philosopher, he said, morality is ultimately arbitrary. That's a problem. When you don't, when you become a relativist, everything is relative. I want to read his poem. Can we have it there? 
I put it up and sent it to Sammy in the morning. You like poetry? Sometimes. Most of the time it gives you indigestion, right? It all depends on where you are. It all depends upon on when you are. It depends on what you feel. It all depends upon how you feel. It all depends on how you raise. It all depends on what is praised. What is right today is wrong tomorrow. Joy in France, in England sorrow. It all depends on the point of view. Australia or Timbuktu, in Rome do as the Romans do. If it tastes, just happens to agree, then you have morality. Where there are conflicting, okay. It all depends, it all depends. Did he say? There is nothing hard and fast. Everything is negotiable. Everything is negotiable. Everything is negotiable. Everything. That's how Christians are. Everything is negotiable. Open. No hard and fast rules. That is the danger. And we don't even realize. We say we believe. We say I am sanctified. But you know what? Deep inside we have all this. Pluralism. Materialism. Narcissism or relatives. And we struggle with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Anybody who believes here? That's why in the Old Testament he says, one from a city, one from a town is the ones who will be separated. Because in one whole city there will be only one who is a disciple. We are run out of time. Twelve. Okay, shall we pray? Father, this morning we just come to you. We just love you, Lord. We just love you. Continue to speak to us. Continue to teach us. Continue to separate us. Continue to give us strength to these young ones to make quality decisions in life, Lord. To stand up and to stand apart. Yet to be gentle about it because it's about them and them alone, Lord. Not to be obstinate, not to be rude, but to stand there as Daniel stood there and speak for himself alone, Lord. Help them to make choices in life, choices that will determine what they become in eternity, Lord. Help us, help us. Go into a new week and a new month. May your hand of strength, power and might rest upon each one and keep us. Keep, Help us to keep what we have heard and what we believe to be true, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Father. We just bless your holy name. We just bless your holy name. We just bless your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of us. Amen, amen, amen.